conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Danny Ryan. We're talking all about Maniac today. And this is a Netflix original series. It is a limited series, so as far as I know, it's not coming back. I marked it as complete in my TV tracking app, so there is that. But Danny, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. It's starting to uh, get a little warmer in California, and I'm not looking forward to the summer podcast. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I always have to turn the air conditioning off here in Georgia for our summer podcast, too. And usually at about the hour mark, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, this podcast tends to be an hour or less. So, you know, we should be good here. But let's go ahead and just dive right on into Maniac because it was something that came out September 2018. And for whatever reason, I didn't get to it right away, which means it just kept sitting in my list. And then I was like, you know what, I am a little behind on scheduling episodes for this podcast. So let me see who wants to talk about what and when you wanted to talk about this, I was like, yes, I finally have the perfect excuse to go watch it because it's technically homework for the podcast. That's really how I get a lot of things done. So <laughs> I was glad you wanted to discuss it, but let's jump on into the main cast because you have some very, very big names in this. What did you think when you first heard that Emma Stone and Jonah Hill were going to be co-starring in a Netflix series together? My first thought was, okay, is it a comedy or is it a dark comedy? Like what would, because they're both, you know, big time comedians, but they both have done a lot of dramatic roles too. So I was like, okay, th that could be really interesting. Um, Cause I really do like both of them. Uh, and then um, also the showrunner, Carrie Fukunaga, I really liked his work. Um, and so I, I was excited. And then when I started hearing the rest of the cast, uh, Justin Thoreau and Sally Field, and I was just like, all right, I'm sold. I, I don't even care what it's about. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. And it was, a dark comedy, but it was so much more than that, too, at the same time, because there were very few moments where you really find yourself just all out laughing during the show. At least that's how it was for me. I was like, am I supposed to be laughing here? I mean, you know, you have some funny moments in it, for sure, especially once they sort of get into these alternate realities that are playing out in their heads. And, you know, you see Emma Stone with elf ears, and, you know, small things like that. But Emma Stone plays Annie and Jonah Hill plays Owen. They're two strangers who meet for this drug trial. And then Justin Thoreau is one of the doctors spearheading the trial. And his mother, played by Sally Field, does add some to the comedic relief a little bit because the those two characters and you know the way they play off each other it's sad but at the same time it's just so bizarre that you're like okay this is a little weird but I'm still going to laugh because it's so out there well I think a lot of the humor is in the absurdity um, yes it's very absurdist humor very dry absurdist kind of humor like a lot of the things you're laughing at you're laughing at situational awkwardness or a, just a funny little moment. And some of it's not even really that funny as much as it is tragic, but you have to laugh at it so you don't cry. <laughs> yeah. um, 
in particular, um, a lot of the stuff with um, Annie's character and Owen, well, actually both of their characters, um, they both hire friends, essentially. Um, they pay for a friendship, which is just a brutal concept, but the way that it's portrayed is so absurd and and yet so relatable and so like, oh yeah, I could totally see this being a thing, like the way Uber has become a thing. And the, the commodification of social interaction is just completely absurd and sad and you have to laugh at it a little bit. Yeah, of course. And you have some other actors in this show who were definitely familiar to me, but I didn't necessarily think they were as important of characters to the story. And you have Gabriel Byrne as Porter Milgram, who is Owen's dad. And he obviously plays an important role in Owen's life because Owen is sort of the black sheep of the family. And one of his brothers, Jed, is played by Billy Magnuson. And I recognized him from Game Night most recently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was able to play two different characters because Owen sees his brother as, you know, this person who is in his head giving him all sorts of weird advice at times. And then his actual brother is, you know, not a great guy, as we find out by the end of the series. And you're like, oh, okay, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, Billy Magnuson's character, Jed, is... Uh, Owen Jonah Hill's character's brother and yeah he's he's just a real sleazeball um, just not a good guy he does some awful things and the family asks Owen to basically provide him with an alibi even though um, Owen knows that his brother did this awful thing and um, when Owen had a psychotic break way earlier he saw this other version of his brother that tells him what to do and is sort of more kind and is sort of what he wishes his brother was. And it's just his brother with a mustache, which is a really great sort of like superhero bizarro kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, everybody in this is great. I think the person that blew me away the most um, is Sonoya Mizuno. She yes. plays the do other doctor, Dr. Izumi. Um, who is uh, Justin Thoreau's character's love interest and also his partner in this in running this experiment? And every single scene she's in, she's just absolutely incredible. Like she's the MVP of this for me. And there's so many good performances, but hers is breathtaking. One of the things I think that has happened with a lot of the Netflix originals, especially the shows, is they've brought out these people who you know, might not be familiar to you, but then you sort of just really fall in love with their characters. And it's obviously something we've seen with Stranger Things, you know, maybe only a handful of names were familiar to people before that show came out. But then you just want to see these characters in everything or, you know, the real people, not the characters necessarily. And I feel like that's something that is going to happen with her character. And you know, she's just going to sort of go beyond this role. And whether that's, you know, in another Netflix series or just getting more roles down the line, I think it's something that definitely would make me expect to see her in other things because we've obviously seen Emma Stone in plenty of things. Same with Jonah Hill and Justin Thoreau. You know, those are all familiar names. And of the main cast, her name was the only one that was not familiar to me. I was like, you know, 
I don't really know if I've seen her in anything. She kind of looks familiar, but at the same time, it could just be one of those things. Oh, she was in Ex Machina, so that is probably why she looked familiar and in Annihilation. So she has been in some things that I have seen, but she wasn't necessarily a main character in those. So I think this was definitely a standout role for her. It's a standout role for her, and it's also just such a fascinating character because I feel like it's a character they could have gone in so many different tropey directions with, and they don't. She's so completely unique. Um, I've never encountered a female character that has been allowed to be this unapologetically weird um, and yet be so powerful and so awesome. Like, I just really, really loved the complexity of um, Dr. Izumi. And I feel like her, well, I mean, everybody's story is complex, but I felt like allowing her story to be that complex and also allowing her to kind of waver between being really likable and unlikable. That's something they usually don't let women do in stories. So that was refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and dive on into the story. We touched on it a little bit, mentioning, you know, these people meet during a drug trial, and there are obviously other test subjects, but none of them are really crucial. They're sort of just there for, you know, the whole effect of, hey, you know, we selected X amount of people, you you have the evens and the odds, and we aren't going to call you by your name, we're just going to call you by your number. And they really sort of dehumanize them during this process, because they're being called by their numbers. And it's sort of something I think you really see in, you know, like the prison system, your inmate, whatever, instead of your actual name. And it was just really interesting to have that comparison. You know, they weren't necessarily in prison, but they were kind of in a type of prison for, you know, X amount of weeks or however long it was. Well, and I feel too like you have to think about, you know, mental institutions and things like that. There's definitely a correlation there with, you know, folks that are institutionalized or even people just who are in the mental health system who don't get the proper treatment, who are just, you know, thrown drugs, locked up in a room and treated as uh, an object. And I think that definitely speaks to something here as well. Um, but I also think the the biggest thing with the series, the series as a whole is looking at dehumanization and whittling us all down to numbers because there's this tie between this incredible commercialism, um, which we see with like hiring friends, you know, that you can, you can pay somebody to spend time with you or you can, there's another pro uh, where you can actually sit and listen to ads. The guy will like just tell you an ad, but then yeah. because of that, he'll be your friend. Like, Oh my goodness. Um, and, and so all of that commercialism is pushing us to just be numbers and pushing us further and further apart and into this isolation. So it's kind of an interesting mirroring that, you know, the world is doing this, but then these people are supposed to be fixing it and they're doing the same thing. Right. I found the ad buddy thing to be really weird and intriguing at the same time because it's like, you know, people are literally walking up to you paying for something in exchange for you being read all of these ads. And from what I can tell, it sounds like you have to act on one of them in order for the the whole process to be complete. Right. 
Which is such, it's like an internet ad thing. Like if you wanted to earn, you know, game points on Neopets back in the day, you have to complete (laughs) an ad revenue thing in order to get your points. And if it wasn't completed, you didn't get your points. What a throwback. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you even have Annie telling Owen at one point, oh, yeah, I just sold my face to be used on ads, pretty much. And it's like, you know, she's not getting royalties from that or anything. It was probably a one time thing from an ad buddy so that she can pay for her cigarettes or whatever. And, you know, you have that moment early on at the laundromat. And she's trying to buy cigarettes and the guy won't let her use Ad Buddy to pay for it. And he really initially comes off as paranoid. But by the time you finish the series, you're like, yeah, maybe that guy had the right idea. Yeah, maybe maybe Ad Buddy's not that great. Well, and it's just interesting, too, because, you know, it's about a loss of identity, you know, which is something that we're dealing with now with Facebook and Twitter and social media and putting all of your information out of there and they can just take it and... So I think I think this movie has a lot on its mind. I don't know that it necessarily goes into all of it in depth, but I think it has a lot of really, really interesting ideas and the world building is one of them. And it's just a really neat sort of near future cyberpunk world that's not your traditional, you know, super gritty neon and rain soaked cyberpunk. It's a little bit more, um, a little more realistic. Yeah, even though it's the near future, it in a way feels very 80s too once you get into the trial and everything it seems like some of the equipment isn't really futuristic looking instead it looks older like something you'd see in the 80s or 90s or something like that and it's just really interesting how they use that and just visually you're like i don't really know what time period we're in and you know the ads everywhere it was a little like walking into Times Square, even though this was just, you know, not something on that exact level. But outside of Owen's apartment, you have, you know, these neon advertisement signs outside. And it's just like, he's paying so much money for that apartment. And yet he has these bright neon lights outside 24-7, which is probably pretty annoying, even if you can, you know, cover up your windows. I'm sure it still comes through. And it's just such an ad-driven world. And that's something that's easy to relate to, especially you and I spending so much time on the internet like we do and, you know, visiting all these websites and on Twitter and things like that. It's just constantly everyone is being hit in the face with ads pretty much and there are fewer and fewer ways to avoid them it seems you know i use a third-party twitter app so that's how i get around seeing ads all day on twitter because i have heard some people you know will see an ad like every three tweets and i'm like i don't want that i do not want that to be my twitter experience twitter is already weird without the ads (laughs) The ads are just extra flavoring. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the thing that cracked me up the most in Maniac, the one little sequence with ads that I was just, it was really funny, is um, Owen goes to the bathroom um, and throws up and he goes to to wipe his face off and the toilet paper has ads printed on it. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> a company logo printed on the toilet paper and I'm like, you can't even go to the bathroom without having advertisements shoved down your throat. That's... Like, that's a really good indicator of what this world is like. 
Yeah, one thing that I did like about this near futuristic world was the little sanitation bots. Yes. Because as someone who has walked down city streets in Philly and, you know, just in neighborhoods in general in Southern California, so many people do not pick up their dog poop. (laughs) So many people. So, you know, to have little bots going around taking care of that, that would be pretty nice. And, you know, you don't entirely know what all the bots are doing. You know, they could be constantly recording and, you know, recording everyone who goes by or, you know, they keep records of what they saw if they have, you know, little cameras on them, like, oh, this guy does not pick up his dog poop. (laughs) Right, like they're reporting on you to Big Brother. (laughs) Yeah, it almost feels like that could be a secondary use for them. And I think, you know, we probably aren't too far away from someone creating some sort of little robot that goes around and picks up trash around cities, especially, you know, New York, San Francisco, the really big major markets that could probably use some help with that, to be honest. Yeah, like a Roomba for sidewalks. Yeah. (laughs) And you even see Annie help it out when it's stuck on a tree root. So it's like, eh, okay, you know, of the things in this near future world, maybe the sanitation bots aren't so bad compared to everything else that you have going on. And we see Annie use sort of that friend app or whatever it is to eventually blackmail someone at the pharmaceutical company in order to get into the drug trial. So there are a lot of downsides to things like that, too. It's like, how do you even know who you're actually meeting with? Like, that just sounds super sketchy. Yeah, it is. um, It's a really, really strange world, but it's one that doesn't feel that far removed from our own. Yeah. And so that's the real world that we're dropped into. And that's not even going into the fact that most of this takes place inside the characters' heads um, because they do this drug trial and a lot of what we see in the episodes is what they go through during this drug trial because each of um, the three pills that they're given causes a different uh, sort of psychological reaction. And these psychological reactions are in the form of fantasies, basically. Um, It kind of feels like the cell, but uh, taken just a little bit less seriously, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And for both Annie and Owen, their trauma really stems from their families in different ways. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, Owen is the black sheep of the family and he has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Granted, it was a while ago, and he said it was only, you know, one blip, I believe is what he called it. And with Annie, she loses her sister. So she just keeps reliving that event over and over and over again because she was already hooked on the A pill before the trial even started. And that's why she wanted to get into the trial. Right. And so the A pill is, um, it's sort of the sober pill. It's, it's the pill that forces you to confront uh, the thing that is hurting you the most. And in, in Annie's case, that is the death of her sister. Uh, Owen initially refuses to take the, the A pill because he thinks Annie is going to help him. Right. Or Annie is going to tap him, essentially. Um, and then when Owen does take it, we see that he had a, a nervous breakdown which he calls a blip. And that's when 
um, he started seeing the the other brother. And that's the A pill. A pill's not so hard to get through as far as watching because you're just like, okay, those are the traumatic events that happened to them. It's really easy to piece that together. Then they do the B pill. And yes, <laughs> Annie and Owen have a shared fantasy, hallucination, dream, whatever you want to call it. And that's one of my favorite sequences or parts of the whole series is their first shared hallucination where they are trying to to steal this this um <laughs> this pet. Yeah, it's a lemur, I believe. Yes, yes, it's a lemur. Um and in fact the lemur the lemur's name ends up showing up in the very last episode in the real world, which makes you go, wait a second. <laughs> um there's lots of really fun little Easter eggs, like all of the dreams are tied together in different right. ways, and there's numbers, things throughout. Like it's it's Carrie Fukunaga being Carrie Fukunaga and just leaving breadcrumbs for everybody. Um but yeah, so they they want to save this lemur and Emma Stone trying to save this lemur is just so fun and funny. And this is one <laughs> of the easiest to watch segments because it's just a blast. Yeah, once we start getting those, you know, I guess kind of alternate realities in a sense, like you said, it's hard to know what to call them exactly because they're obviously drug induced and they're not exactly hallucinations because they're not awake for it from what I can tell, but Either way, you know, they just go all out with these different stories that they're telling every time, you know, they take the drug for the trial. And it leads to a lot of interesting moments. And, you know, I thought that Emma Stone and Jonah Hill had pretty good chemistry throughout all of these episodes because Emma Stone is just so over the top in some of these roles when it comes to, you know, finding the lemur and, you know, having the elf ears and <laughs> just really getting into each and every role that they play. And I would say Owen is a little more monotone in some of his roles just because of who he's supposed to be as a person in comparison to Annie, who seems to be more willing to do sort of these outrageous things, whereas Owen sort of just wants to keep to himself. And I think that comes through in all of these as well, which is really nice to have that running thread throughout them. Yeah. And it's interesting, like you said, about their trauma coming from their families, and they both reacted to it in different ways. Owen shut down. Owen let himself sort of be dominated by his his overbearing father and mm -hmm. his and his brother, whereas Annie's family just isn't really around. Her dad lives in this little isolation chamber thing and her sister's dead and her mom's not in the picture. Yeah. And has not been in the picture for a long time. And so it's interesting seeing how they deal with those traumas in the fantasy worlds as well, because you get to see sort of their fantasy versions of themselves, like what, who they'd want to be as well as who they think they are. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. That's it's, really difficult and dense um but it's also enjoyable because it's so visually spectacular um that you just can't help but love it and and it's cool too because it's also mirrored in the real world by the doctors um because the one doctor has a serious oedipus complex and there's yes. all <laughs> kinds of family issues going on there um with Justin Thoreau's character. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things here about family trauma, healing, and how we see ourselves in our own heads. Absolutely. And the fact that they have 
those sort of traumas, not only with the people running the trial, but with the people in the trial, it just sort of gives you this big sense of what reality is like, you know, even though we're seeing these sort of fantasy made up scenarios, you can really tell what's running through their heads as these things are playing out, regardless of how, you know, outrageous things might seem, especially when you're going after a dead lady's lemur who, <laughs> who is at a fur shop, basically. Yeah, saving a lemur from Cruella de Vil for all intents and purposes. <laughs> um, yes. And, well, and then, I mean, and they get crazier from there because then you've got right. um, Owen ends up in like a mob family situation um, and has to has to do a hit and that whole performance is really weird, but it's entertaining and getting to see Gabriel Byrne go like full mob boss is fun. So I'm here for that. <laughs> um, there's the real, they get, they'd go back to like a 1940s murder mystery party kind of scenario um, for a little bit. That's yeah. really fun. And, and then we do get to see um, where Emma Stone becomes an elf and she's helping her sister who is this, um, this elven princess, she's helping her get home or, or to this, she's helping her find a, a magical fountain that will heal her. Right. Um, and she, so it, it's, it's all stuff, you know, like if you read about psychology, there's a million and five things they're playing with here. Um, they're playing with Freud, they're playing with Jung, they're playing with all kinds of stuff. There's several um, really fun literary references. There's uh, an episode called Windmills, and there's a ton of stuff about Don Quixote. Um, there's a really fun part where Annie says, I'm going to finally read this. Healthy people read books. And I'm like, um, the whole thing in Don Quixote is that his books made him go mad. So that's kind of it's a really funny situational irony if you're in on the joke. Um it's dense, but it's something that I've appreciated when I watched it the first time and I've appreciated going back and revisiting was just how complex it is, because I think this is something you could revisit over and over and over again and get something new out of it every time. Yeah, I think with Owen's character, the one time he was sort of just playing this over the top character was in the second to last episode and he's playing the Icelandic UN agent. And he's accused of basically murdering an alien. And his voice just gets so high. And I was like, wow, this is such a stark difference from all of the ones that came before that. I was like, sort of taken aback by it for a minute because I was like, oh, wow, I was not expecting this. Because like I said, he had sort of been more reserved the entire time until this. And then, you know, Annie is some sort of sleeper CIA agent or something like that and she's going to get him out of there and there's a lot of bodies that drop in that episode but it was just really interesting to see how they were able to put all of those different scenarios together and still have them tie together you know between the first episode and the final episode so why don't we actually go ahead and talk about some of those set pieces and the costume designs because I think if they didn't nail the tone for each of those things and each of those scenarios, this show wouldn't have been as intriguing as it was. Absolutely. Like the cast is phenomenal and they did a great job and the direction's great enough, but the, this is a stunning show. Um, it's beautiful to look at. The sound design is incredible. The costume design, the set design, just 
everything is stellar. Um, and I mean, from the design of the little poop cleaning up bots, you know, they're they're designed to be just cute enough for you to want her to help it when it falls over. Um, you know, there, or when it gets stuck, there's all kinds of really, really good design elements. And it's interesting. You said it was very eighties. It is really retro futuristic, but I think since it's dealing with a lot of cyberpunk themes, a lot of capitalism and like hacking your brain and things like that. Um, I think that makes sense because cyberpunk kind of came out of the 80s. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really interesting retro future kind of thing. I love the designs. I love the colors. I just think that yeah. this, it's such a vibrant series and it's it's beautiful. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. And the, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I can't say enough good things about it on a visual level because I feel like every single frame is gorgeous with a couple of exceptions um but the ones that aren't gorgeous there's a reason um like Justin Thoreau inside his weird sex fantasy bot thing and he looks like a Dragon Ball Z character (laughs) yeah like if I could unsee that that'd be great but the rest of the movie is wonderful (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know you called this a movie and really it does feel like one very long movie in a sense even though it you're does. sitting there watching 10 episodes because yeah, it's it's a mini series but god it feels like a movie it, and i know and i just made fun of nicholas winding refn for saying that his mini series is just a 12-hour movie but that's what this felt like is it really feels like a 10-hour movie yeah and really it's not even 10 hours because the episodes are ranging from you know like 26 minutes to 40 something minutes so you know you really aren't spending a lot of time in this world but i feel like you spend just enough to where you can really appreciate all of the work that went into the sets and the costumes because you know when you have something that you only need a costume for like 20 minutes for that's a lot of work going into all of that set design and the costume design just for 20 minutes of a show so you know you really have to just take a step back and appreciate all of the effort that went into this and obviously effort goes into every single show and movie ever made it's just some like this one executed a lot better than others but i do agree with you on you know the doctor's little fantasy thing that he had going on there. I was like, no, we did not need this. (laughs) I mean, I laughed really, really hard, but I was like, oh, wow, that was um, something. That was a visual moment that I was not (laughs) expecting at all. Um, Was not prepared for that in the slightest. Was was not prepared for that in the slightest. It's a really harsh cut. It's just like cut and you're like, okay. But it's, you know, other than that, yeah, it's a beautifully visual series. Um, And yeah, I I can't say anything bad about the design at, at all. I have no complaints. Yeah. And one of the things I think that we definitely want to dive into here is how the show handles mental illness you know we've touched on it a little here and there and i think this is actually one of those shows where you know they're not being disrespectful to the people who have a mental illness they're taking it and being like you know we understand that this is how you are treated and you know even though it is bizarre and wacky at times i never felt like you know they were trying to say anything bad about people with these illnesses or anything 
along those lines. It really just felt like, you know, they're sort of honest, but futuristic and kind of wacky interpretation of what drug trials are like. And, you know, I would say this drug trial in general definitely felt more like something they would have done back in, you know, maybe even the 50s like the six- and 60s. Yeah, like the 60s, yeah. all the LSD they were given to soldiers and stuff. Yeah. It really felt like, you know, you mentioned retro in the look and really in just how they were approaching things felt retro too. And I think, you know, it was a statement on, hey, you know, this is not ideal for anyone, really. And you have these doctors who are under huge amounts of pressure, and they have their own issues that they're dealing with, and the technology is backfiring on them, and so many things are going wrong, and yet the characters still need to be able to be taken care of and take care of having, you know, whatever mental illness they each have. Yeah, I think I think it's handled really, really well. Um, because I don't think any of the laughs are ever at the character's expense as far as their mental illness goes. Like anytime um, there's, you know, humor or dark humor that is at a character's expense, it's usually because the character is doing something stupid, not because they're, you know, mentally unwell. Um, Because pretty much the only one who's really rung for laughs is Justin Thoreau's character. And he's not a real good person. So it's, I don't have a problem laughing at him. Right. Um, and he even gets a bit of redemption, so it, it ends up working out in the end. I think it's, I think it's really a look at what it means to be human, and that we're all a little bit broken or a little bit um, flawed in some way. And whether that's mental illness, or whether that's trauma, or whether that's just having family issues. Um, I think that that's kind of the common thread and each of the characters is treated with a lot of empathy because even when it's showing us things, you know, that maybe we don't like as viewers about these characters, it's still asking us to consider why they do the things they do and to put ourselves in their shoes to really feel what they're going through. Um, and, and I think that's, that's incredible stuff and, and it's, a really good portrayal of mental illness for that reason, because it makes you care. Exactly. You really feel for the characters you're meant to feel for by the end of this. And, you know, I would say Sally Field's character, you know, playing the other Dr. Mantle Ray, she's really the only one where I was like, I don't really care for you, which was weird because, you know, Sally Field is so great. And you're just like, oh, no, you're not not a great person in this. It's like, yes, you've had lots of success. But at the same time, you know, everything is just too weird with your son. <laughs> I um with with her character. I couldn't stand her until she went into the machine and talked to the machine that was her own consciousness. Right. And- okay. After all of that and, like, the the kindness that she showed to this AI, um, that the AI that had been running the whole, pro- the whole project, um, the AI that helped them through their visions and everything, had been given empathy by um, Dr. Izumi. She'd been given the ability to, to feel. And because of that, the machine fell in love and the machine's lover died and the machine got depressed. And so when Sally Field goes and she comes out and she's like your AI is depressed. I was like, that's fascinating. Okay, that's another step to take. Can artificial intelligence 
suffer the same way we do. Like, that's another thing on its mind. And that was kind of her redemptive moment for me was that at least she had enough compassion to see when this artificial intelligence was hurting to see beyond the fact that it was artificial. Yeah, for me, it just felt like she had more compassion for a machine than her own son, in a way, because that's legitimate. At the end there, <laughs> you know, she was like, oh, I'm leaving the country. I won't see you for quite some time. And that's sort of just how they leave things. And it's like, he just sort of had this great breakthrough moment. And his hard work had paid off, albeit, you know, he is a very odd character <laughs> as well. But, you know, you really just felt like she definitely was a much better doctor than she was a mother. For sure. Much, much better doctor than she was a mother. Um, but at the same time, you have to wonder, like, what kind of son is he? You know, like, how much of that is on him? How yeah. how difficult has he been? How needy has he been? Maybe she needs to maintain distance because of him. Which I felt she just really didn't get quite enough characterization. She wasn't totally rounded out. And so for that, it makes it hard to understand why she might have done certain things. And so, yeah, she's, she's not as great, but... Um, everybody else I cared about, I cried like three times during the finale. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think it's great. I think it's it's really powerful stuff. And that the the series, its main theme is that isolation only hurts us and that we have to find, find healing through each other, um, through sharing our experiences and through uh, just, you know, being together. One of my favorite parts of the finale was when Annie goes and gets Owen out of the institution. She was like, yeah, you know what? Something might be wrong with you, but you definitely do not belong here of all places. Right. She's like, you don't belong here. Like, you don't belong locked up. Um, you know, you're 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 damaged in a couple of different ways, but you don't belong behind bars. You don't belong in this place. And And I love that because he doesn't. Um, I don't think he did anything wrong, really, to deserve any of that. And I love their, I love their relationship because it's romantic, but it's not like beat you over the head with it. Like it doesn't ever get obnoxiously romantic. Um, I feel like more than anything, they have a really deep understanding of one another and a really pure friendship that's that's hard to undermine. It always felt like more of a budding romance than. A full-blown, right. hey, these two characters are going to end up together and we are going to beat you over the head with the love interest scenario. Really, it's just these two people trying to survive. And in the end, they're trying to survive together. And that's a great story to tell. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful story. And I think... And I think it's one that, um, you know, as we, I said, the, the story of the doctors mirrors the story of these two patients. And, you know, at the end, Dr. Azumi and uh, Dr. James Mental Ray both end up fired. Um, James, his mother, basically gets him barred from ever, ever working in psychology ever again. And so he's got to start over completely. But he rekindles his relationship with... Dr. Izumi and on new terms, you know, as equals. And it's this really beautiful moment because they have nothing, but they have each other. And I feel like that completely mirrors Owen and Annie, you know, escaping mm -hmm. this mental institution, going to Salt Lake City. They don't have <laughs> anything except each other. And I think that's beautiful. 
And if I'm not mistaken, they drive by each other in opposite directions at the very end, too. <laughs> it's so cute. Like, I can't I can't help but love stuff like that. Like, little serendipitous things like that that make it all feel connected and seamless is just, it's really satisfying. Yeah, let's talk about the cinematography real quick before we go into some final thoughts, because we already mentioned the set design, costume design, and those things. But really... Just the way some of this series was shot, it just looked so good. Even though, you know, we've said it's really wacky, but just the colors, the way they popped on the screen when you have, you know, Greta lighting up and it's in the shape of a face, it just all looked so well done. It really did. And there's lots of really good colored lighting and uses of um, just lots of really fun uses of color um like when they're you know under um when they're in the room and they go under the different tests like the the lighting in the room is different colors it really sets a mood mm -hmm. and i i think it's just it's beautifully shot everything is really well framed it it reminded me a lot it's funny because um dr izumi the actress that played her was in ex machina because it kind of reminded me visually of ex machina um yeah. I, I felt like there was a lot of similar visuals going on um it's it's beautiful stuff it's it's absolutely gorgeous camera movements great there's um i don't remember any crazy long takes or anything like that but the editing feels just really seamless mm -hmm. um other, other than that one cut where we're like oh justin throw no <laughs> um other than that everything is just it's it's edited well enough together that you don't pay attention to the editing too much it's very understated and i enjoyed that about it because everything else is so loud and in your face that i feel like um if they had edited it you know frenetically or if there had been any weird goofy editing tricks you'd just be like okay that's too much guys like that's enough um because it's not really a super linear story it's it's really experimental and weird um so I, I love the fact that the that some of the storytelling is just straightforward enough to keep us comfortable. I feel like editing is best when you don't notice it. So that's definitely a testament to how well they did with this because there weren't really, like you said, too many abrupt cuts or edits to where you're like, oh, okay, guess we're, you know, not in their little fantasy world anymore. And going back to the colors real quick, they knew when not to use them. Too, you know, when you're in the 1940s, they don't really have any of these bright colors popping out because you don't have the neon and those things that you see in the present day and at the drug trial and everything like that. So they really nailed just how to make each setting look. You know, when they're in the woods, you aren't really going to have any bright colors in the woods. It's the woods, you know. <laughs> Well, and I think I think one thing, um, and I think you can attribute this to Fukunaga because um, he does it so well on and other stuff that he's done. Like I was, it was funny watching Maniac, and I'm like, I can't believe this is the guy that made True Detective season one. Like, <laughs> yeah, but then at the same time, I'm like, wait a second, no, there's a lot of really he really understands how to sell mood. Yes. And the mood throughout this is always spot on. Like you always know what you're supposed to be feeling while you're seeing this. And even if that feeling is just what the heck, um, even if it's surprise or, um, you know, just being weirded out, it's very, very clear um, what 
what the vision was uh, with regards to mood and theme. And I think the cinematography and the direction really exemplifies that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive into some final thoughts here. Overall, I wouldn't say this is, you know, my favorite thing that I've watched recently, but it was weird and just so visually interesting to where I found myself enjoying it more than I thought I would given just sort of the subject matter. It was not exactly sci-fi or anything like that, but it was just one of those sort of futuristic takes. And, you know, I don't watch too many things that take place in the future, really. So for me, I was like, okay, I am going to dive into this see if I enjoy it. And the main reason I wanted to check it out was because of the cast. I was like, you know what? I like a lot of the people who are in this, so I will give it a shot. And I ended up liking it more than I thought I would. And obviously, it's been very great talking about it as well. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. This was a show I did not expect to fall in love with the way I did. Um, I basically started watching it because I was like, all right, I like I like the cast. I like the director. I like cyberpunk. Um, I watched the trailer and I was like, yeah, this looks cyberpunk. Cool. I'm in. Um, And then it just sucker punched me um, with how much I ended up caring about these characters and how much I loved the weirdness. Um, I think there's, there's something to be said for this particular flavor of weirdness because it's so heartfelt. Like it's not like being weird for weird sake. It doesn't feel like, uh, is trying to just be wacky and crazy to make people say things on the internet about it. Like, it doesn't feel like that sort of um, tropey fake weirdness that unfortunately you do see in a lot of things. It feels like this is the only way they knew how to tell this story. And it's it's natural to the story. And it's just kind of pure and wonderful. And it really, really connected with me in a way that I did not expect. Out of curiosity, have you watched Legion on FX? I've watched the first three episodes, and okay. I need to watch a whole bunch more. Um, I, I'm so behind on that one, but that's one I really want to see more of because I loved Aubrey Plaza's character. I feel like the level of weirdness in that show and the level of weirdness in this show are pretty on par with each other. They're a different kind of weirdness, and obviously they're telling different stories, but I actually wouldn't say they're too terribly different you know it's different scenarios but it's the first thing that came to mind when I was watching this I was like you know what this reminds me a bit of Legion and you know so if anyone has watched Maniac hopefully you have because we spoiled everything and if you haven't seen Legion I would definitely recommend checking that out too so I you know I won't give any more away since you've only seen three episodes but I'm looking forward to that coming back (laughs) Yes, um, I, I have some friends who are like obsessed with it. And they're like, you need to catch up. You need to catch up. Like, okay, okay, okay. I have to catch up on so many things. Story of our lives. And I know it's, I know it's Dan Stevens, but ah. <laughs> yeah, well, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? The last thing I want to touch on is just, um, you know, with, with Netflix, I love that they are giving platforms to creatives to do weird stuff like this to be a little bit experimental um i'm glad that they're buying up films that do well um on the independent circuit and that they're distributing them the way they are like i just saw the perfection um this weekend and it blew my mind i really really was not expecting anything like that from a netflix original so (laughs) 
just I'm I'm really really impressed by Netflix willing to uh, to try weird different things, um, perhaps more so than any of the other streaming networks so far. So keep doing that, Netflix and other streaming networks. Catch on. Stop doing your own basic versions of network TV shows and <laughs> let's let's let the weird people out to play. Yeah, that's one thing I'm really enjoying with some of the streaming services. You know, I watched Castle Rock on Hulu and obviously doing a Stephen King podcast, it makes sense that I would watch that. And it is one of those shows where you're just like, okay, this makes me think and it makes me think a lot. And that's what Netflix accomplished with this show too. And I have the perfection sitting in my watch list. So, you know, like you, I have many, many a thing to, <laughs> to watch here. And I'm just really glad we were able to discuss this one. I wouldn't say I binged my way through this. I maybe watched like two or three episodes a day for the last, you know, few days once I had scheduled this with you. So I was like, yes, okay, I will get through this. That will be one more thing I can tick off the list. <laughs> I binged it in 48 hours. Like I, I started it, um, like, cause in October I, I, um, was dealing with a couple of things and I remember being homesick one day and it came out and I was like, ah, whatever, I'll try this. And I watched, I think the first six episodes the first day and then finished it the next morning. Um, which I do not recommend doing that. <laughs> uh, it's too much. It is too much emotional up and down. Um, it's too much to binge in in that kind of go, but I think two to three episodes at a time is probably the good, the best way to do it. Um, don't binge the whole series. Yeah, it's it's a little too much. Um, and actually, I had a friend who did the exact same thing, and he's like, "Oh, I just binged all of Maniac. Don't do that." And then I did it, and I was like, "Well, oops, <laughs> oops, sorry, I didn't follow your advice." But he told me not to watch Chernobyl, and I'm not going to. So I learned. I keep hearing about that, but it has not made its way onto my list because so many things already reside on my list. <laughs> yeah, I um, I just do not need to be that depressed. Thanks. Exactly. Well, Danny, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. Like I said, it has definitely been fun. You will surely be back for another discussion on some other show or movie or book or something along those lines. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I always love coming on and talking to you about geeky stuff, Stephen King stuff, whatever. Um, so thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Of course. And if anyone does want to check out that Stephen King podcast, it's called Chat Cemetery. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. And you can follow us at Geekdom Pod on Twitter. Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram. I'm not really keeping up with Facebook much these days. So you can like the Welcome to Geekdom page, but you probably won't see too terribly much from me there. And as always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.